0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, gods and goddesses, to the Golden Age Gurus Podcast, your source for regenerative, entrepreneurial, and eco-friendly global solutions using ancient future strategies that focus on healing ourselves, our community, and the planet. Now, it is truly an honor to introduce your host, Baba John. Greetings Golden Agers. It's Monday morning, June 13th. I've got an exciting guest today, Oberon Zell, a real life Dumbledore who runs the Gray's School of Wizardry, patented the paleo science technique of creating a unicorn. We're going to get down to the bottom of, are unicorns real? Is magic real? How do you compile your magical knowledge? All these things Oberon's going to talk about. It's great to have him and enjoy. This show is brought to you on Patreon, where creators are supported by their tribe, For the cost of a latte, you can support the show and my advocacy around fringe legal topics ranging from zero waste and Bitcoin to matters of spirit. I'm committed to serving mankind by providing thousands of years of ancestral wisdom, learn from my gurus, join my network, and get exclusive content. We have a free tier so you don't have to worry about money, a support tier for just a few bucks, and an apprentice level for aspiring Jedi interested in my mystery school and nature-based ministry. We have a VIP business tier for CEOs who want their own wizard. Just remember King Arthur had a Merlin and Queen Elizabeth had her John Dee. Historically, I've charged way more as a consultant, but while I wrap my last year of law school, I'm willing to help just to get this new platform going. You'll have access to me with the Voxer app and get access to the advocacy Launchpad and Discord. Sponsorship is sold separate. If you're interested, message and visit patreon.com, P A T R E O N.com forward slash golden age gurus. Follow for free and support if you can. O'Bronzel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Johnny. Last time I, I uh, saw you was in uh, Guatemala, but I uh, ran into your uh, girlfriend at the Scarborough Fair last year.
1: Ah, that's great. I'm so glad you you saw Donna there. That's wonderful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My kids uh, got some art from her. All right. I uh, got a magical owl painting <laughs> on the wall. Yeah, she's
1: going to be visiting me in about a week or so, so we'll um, be have a little time together again this summer.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Where where are you right now?
1: I'm in the state of Washington, about 30 miles northeast of Seattle.
0: Nice. So you're you're close to rainforest then?
1: Yes, absolutely. In fact, it's been raining here constantly. While the rest of the country is either in floods or storms or baking heat, it's been really just rainy here, which is nice.
0: <laughs> Beautiful. So um, you are an official wizard. I can, I can vouch. And uh, I've learned, I've read many of your books. I've, been, I've, um, I've got your art, which I also love. Um, and I have
1: a tattooed on your arms. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I even have, uh, some of your artwork on my, on my arms. So, um, yeah, like, uh, I, I'm a fan and thanks for, thanks for joining me and having a, a talk. I thought, uh, we would just, uh, tell the listeners about your life, which is fascinating. And, um, maybe if you can just give a little, uh, snapshot of, of yourself for the, uh, people that don't know you. Uh, and then we can, uh, you know, I'll ask you some questions that I, uh, already sent you some, some, cool. but i got some more. So. I'm all for
1: that. Um, well, gosh, it's, you know, it's really hard to say anything about my life without having to take up the entire time with that alone. I've had a very interesting life and, um, 40 years of it was with the incomparable Morning Glory, who was my life mate and co conspirator and partner in crime for many, many adventures until she died of cancer eight years ago. And, um, you know, since then, I have really uh, not been partnered, but I've continued to be productive writing more books and stuff. Um, gosh, what have I done? I founded the Church of All Worlds in 1962, which we incorporated. In 68, um, I was the first person to claim the identity of pagan for both myself, my religion and my church, which was quite groundbreaking. And um, well, Morning Glory and I spent um, eight years uh, homesteading in a hippie community in Northern California of about 100 families on 6,000 acres of land. We raised unicorns. We uh we did a a diving expedition to new guinea in search of the um, sources of the mermaid legends successfully Um, gosh uh, she coined the term polyamory polyamorous in 1990 which began another whole movement Um, gosh we've had so many amazing adventures with donna uh, whom you met uh, as you mentioned in guatemala as well as at her fair Uh, Scarborough Fair in Texas Uh, I've been all over the world and had many wonderful adventures with her of which you've seen a little bit of so um, gosh I've written a number of books over a dozen books currently Um, um, I'm I'm still busy (laughs) and active oh and I founded the great school of wizardry and which I'm the headmaster and that was in 2004 So, uh, and that's still going strong. Oh, and Green Egg Magazine, I founded um, what became the major pagan publication, Green Egg Magazine, founded in 1968, uh, published um, in printed copy up until the turn of the millennium. And then since then, it's been an online e-zine, but it's still going strong after all these years. That's just a few things, but maybe it'll give a bit of an introduction.
0: Yeah, and you you mentioned the unicorn thing, uh, which uh, you basically patented a, a way to um, grow one horn on a goat. Yep. And you, you're you're just to clarify, you're talking about the goat unicorns that the uh, scar uh, the circus was buying from you.
1: Right. Well, as opposed to what other kind, I mean, if you look at all the old images of unicorns, you'll note that they all have the cloven hooves and a beard. And the, um, the trick was figuring out what species in ancient times had been in fact developed into unicorns. And there was a number of them. In the most ancient times, it was bull unicorns. Um, you see from back in the Bronze Age, many, many depictions of single-horned the bulls, usually shown fighting lions, because that's what unicorns were developed for, was to be um, warriors, to be able to defend the herd against predators, lions and wolves. Um, and many horn species have been developed into unicorns over the ages, but the process has always been a closely guarded secret, which has been lost and rediscovered um, several times throughout history. But there have been uh, taurine bull unicorns, there have been arene ram unicorns, there have been Chervine deer unicorns, and of course, the uh, the classic uh, caprine unicorns that you see on all the tapestries from the Renaissance period—the goat unicorns—that's the ones that we set out to reproduce, and we did that precisely. The animals that we that we created are absolutely straight out of those tapestries.
0: Yeah, I remember you telling me that the the reason they're so aggressive is because the technique makes more air go into their brain or something like that
1: well the air doesn't go into their brain but the um uh, but the horns incorporate the sinuses which go uh, form kind of a honeycomb structure inside the horns it's different than normal horns and um that increases the sense of smell also the positioning of the horns changes the structure of the skull uh significantly and it allows a further development of the frontal lobes of the brain than the two horned uh, structure, which basically compresses the brain in the frontal area. So the animals are really smart. The, uh, the the balance of weight of the horns growing out of the front of the head as opposed to growing backwards, which is the way normal horns develop, puts um, uh, develops an increasing musculature of the neck and shoulders. So the animals... Um, are are much more powerful looking. If you compare the images of a unicorn with the pictures of, say, goats, goats have are noted for little kind of skinny necks, you know, and unicorns are noted for big powerful necks, which is, you know, why they're often um, compared with horses, which have that big powerful neck. But the horse factor was never really part of real unicorns. Horses don't have horns, and all the unicorns ever have always had cloven hooves, which identifies them as. Um, uh, you know, uh, typical horned animals. You know,
0: right? Yeah. So, so you know, is, is magic real or is magic science? What's What's your take on on magic? Well,
1: that's an interesting question. You know, science and magic um, were never distinguishable throughout the most of history. It wasn't until the 1660s with the development of the Scientific Academy that a distinction was made between science and magic. Uh, And they separated out astronomy from astrology, physics from metaphysics, and so on down the line. But um, at at some ultimate level, magic can be understood as science that we don't really yet have um, explanatory theories for. But frankly, up until fairly recent times, we didn't have explanatory theories for lots of things. I mean, gravity, magnetism. You know, uh, germ theory, um, nuclear theory, how the sun worked, or none of these things. There was no possible way to know it. The cosmos itself, cosmology, none of these things had any theoretical basis until the 20th century. So many of them were lumped into the field of magic and superstition. What we've seen since the 1930s has been a revolution in science with the new field of quantum physics. And quantum physics has opened up a whole new perspective that, in fact, does encompass magic, and the uh, rules, the laws of quantum physics, particularly the the concept of entanglement, are um, indistinguishable from the laws of magic. the The magical principles simply laid out the way things worked, and then quantum physicists came along with some explanatory theories uh, to explain it. And so now. You know, when people ask about magic, I always refer them to quantum physics, you know, <laughs> right. which in the early days people like Einstein regarded as magic. Einstein famously referred to um a quantum entanglement as spooky action at a distance, you know.
0: <laughs> well, I, I had another uh elder of mine that is um pretty powerful, written a lot of books, um, named uh Baba Falakun, And uh, he, he, he calls uh, our, our practice, which is uh, a- African um, ancient tradition, uh, he calls it paleo science. He started to call it paleo science. Sure. And, and you know. I thought that was a good uh, way to get the point across, you know,
1: Yes, I like it. That's very nice. Yeah. Um, in my work and in my teachings i have come to a definition of magic that seems to be pretty functional although there are many different uh, versions and many different uh, explanations of what it is the definition of magic that i like to work with is probability enhancement and that also ties into quantum physics which is all about probability so i think we're getting there i think we're moving towards a uh reconciliation Of science and magic as as we're developing more knowledge and becoming aware we're beginning to recognize some things that our our ancestors worked with but they did not have the laboratories and scientific theories to explain the stuff they just figured out what worked
0: yeah when you were talking about the unicorn it made me just think you know that's pretty much paleo science it is absolutely yeah um so one I, I know one of your most valuable and hard to get books is um, the one with the the bestiary. Um, what what what's, oh. what what's the name of the one where you go into all the crypto beasts?
1: Yes, Wizard's Bestiary, and it's uh, been out of print for a few years. But I am just right now completing the final updating and editing for a second edition okay. that will be out probably within a month, and. Um, So look for the second edition of the Bestiary. I've added an additional chapter, a few more pages, done a lot of editing and updating, and I'm really pretty excited about this uh, new release of that. So look for it. The Wizard's Bestiary.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll definitely look for that, and uh, the kids will love it. Um, Also, really, probably the the book that I've used the most is your uh, Apprentice, Wizard's Apprentice book, which I haven't used in tandem with the wizard school, but I'm, I'm, I assume you, you use it um, to, f- for that. But um, yeah, so I, I, I highly recommend the book and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but how how, how are you interfacing as the headmaster? Cause I, I think of you as a real world Dumbledore. Um, well, I
1: have been called that. And I think that's probably appropriate since yeah. I am actually the headmaster yeah. of the real school wizardry. I'm I'm planning on retiring um, this fall upon my, uh, the occasion of my 80th birthday mm. and passing the headmaster torch to the next in line of succession. So that will be nice. But I've held the role for a long time. The Grimoire was the first book I wrote, and that was, uh, came out in 2004. And the school was kind of an outgrowth of it. As I was writing the book, I was developing a textbook, really, for um, – magic in general for uh, the next generation was the idea. And I worked with the Grey Council, Council of Mages and Sages of of our time. And uh, together, our our task was to create a a compendium of all the magical lore that was fundamental and basic for the next generation. We wanted to create basically a textbook for a real life Hogwarts, you know, (laughs) inspired by that. That would be the book that we all wish we could have gotten a hold of and we started on the path and the book that we want to make sure we get next time around when we in our next incarnation, when we're ready for it. So that was what we set out to do. And in the process of of it, I realized that this was really just an introduction, a foundational book, and there was so much more to go. And I wanted to refer the readers to where they could go for more information. I figured there would be some online schools or something. And Mm -hmm. then I found there wasn't any, there really wasn't anything. So that became the next task was to create the school for which the book would be a textbook. Mm. And that's been very successful. The gray school is phenomenal. It's got uh, 16 departments and over 500 classes and a couple dozen remarkable teachers Mm -hmm. and uh, about 300 students. And uh, the, the courses are in seven levels leading up to a journeyman certificate of journeyman wizardry. And it's just terrific. I'm very, very pleased with it and very proud of the students and faculty that we have. They are wonderful.
0: Yeah, I, I, I definitely um, think it's amazing what, you, what you've done with, with, with all that. And we're lucky to, to have you on the planet. And, um, you know, uh, providing that information to people. So, so you mentioned a, a new book um, about Gaia that you're uh, you already published it or you're about to publish it.
1: Oh, it's, it's already out. And I'm really excited about it. This is a, the culmination of, of my teachings over the past 50 years. It's called Gaia Genesis, Conception and Birth of the Living Earth. And it it goes clear back to, you know, Hesiod's Theogony in ancient Greece in the 8th century BCE, and it goes right up to present times. It expands the concept of the earth as a living organism from all the different sources and references from Hesiod to Leonardo da Vinci to, you know, modern scholars. And, of course, my own work as well. It's profusely illustrated it's out in both paperback and hardbound. It's my, my first uh, book to come out in hardback. and I'm really very excited about it. This is the one. If, any, if one book of mine really survives um, the time and all, and future generations want to look back to what it was I was talking about, mm. this was the one. I really hope everybody reads it. And you can check any of my books uh, easily enough. Um, just plug in my name to the book section of Amazon.com, and they'll all come up. You can read the reviews and the explanations and you know, all that stuff. It's all there, all online.
0: So, what about your? Uh, you, you know, you, you you sold me this um, uh, symbol that was a combination of a, of an onk and a pentagram and a, a caduc- cad- caducus. What's what's that word? Caducus. Yeah. And you yes. You had a cool name for the, the the trilogy there combined. Yeah, I call it a Pencaduce. Uh,
1: I struggled for a while trying to come up with the design and then eventually a name for it, that that was a little bit trickier. But uh, Pencaduce covers it really nicely, it, and that really explains what it is. And the whole point of it was to develop a symbol uh, that expressed wizardry in the Western traditions. Mm-hmm. The... Uh, uh, the Kemetic traditions of Egypt represented with the Ankh, the, um, uh, the Greek traditions represented by the pentagram, and, of course, the Hermetic traditions uh, represented by the Caduceus, and all together into one design, they really represent the wisdom teachings of the Western world, and and I'm very pleased with that. Everybody likes it.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I, I seriously can't find mine, so I need to get another one. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, good.
0: Maybe you can maybe you can uh, sign a copy of your your new book and send me a package, and I'll, I'll uh, um, think about. It.
1: <laughs> well, right. I don't have copies here. I'm, I mean, I'm not the distributor.
0: Oh. You
1: know, I don't carry a stash of them around, mm. except when I go to a festival, when I have some shipped to it, but. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, if you, if, if someone buys one of my books and wants me to sign it, they will have to mail it to me, you know, with a return address envelope, which I will happily sign and return to them yourself as well. But I just don't have, uh, I'm not the distributor here.
0: Okay. Well, how do I, how do I replace my Pinkadoos? Would that go through you or do you have a drop shipping situation or something? No, you can, you can
1: order that online. Uh, If you go to the, um. If you go to the gray school uh website, grayschool.com, um, they have a store there that carries a lot of my stuff that's related to the school, including the Pencadus. So you can get that. Beautiful. You can also you can go you can order not only in a in a pendant, but also, you know, t shirts and designs on all kinds of different stuff, you know, because it's it's all over the place there.
0: Yeah, I I actually also got a um Map of the um, nine realms of Norse. I think ah. it was. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful artwork. I tell you, you made such a cool um, map of the, uh, you know, Midgard and 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 uh, Valhalla and all that. And uh, I framed it and I put it in in I the Guatemala
1: house. house. So every time
0: people oh, go to the bathroom, bathroom and okay. take a morning poop, they get uh, uh, a lesson in Norseman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, that's uh, great, I, I'm, I'm delighted with that. I had so much fun.
0: Um, artwork. Did
1: well, most have- of my artwork is, is um, illustrative, you know? The mm-hmm. uh, the Igrisol drawing that you're referencing was originally designed when I was developing a book on the afterlives of different cultures. The um, it's called the, that undiscovered country, a uh, traveler's guide to the afterlife. And I created a number of images and maps of the afterlives of different cultures for that. But that one was the one that I had the most fun with. I really enjoy doing that stuff. And it's all about illustrating concepts. So my books Mm and my writings and especially the Gaia book are just filled with my illustrations to convey the idea in imagery in addition to the words so i I like doing that you know they say one picture is worth a thousand words and i i really take that seriously i kind of got on my professional art career by illustrating science fiction stories back in the 60s for um Mm. you know science fiction publications and so i still have a few of those left around and periodically I plug them into things. There's a few of my old illos from the 60s and 70s are in the Gaia book because uh, I'm talking about stuff that goes back to that period, as well as lots of new stuff. I, I really just enjoy creating art that carries a message. I'm not interested in abstract art or or landscapes and things like that. I'm I'm interested in art that tells a story of some relevance, Things I'm trying points I'm trying to make.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan, um, love it. And uh, my question about that is, is for an aspiring uh, wizard such as, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely thinking about a grammar groom, and um, do you have any tips for organizing a book like that? Um, any techniques that you can recommend Uh, as far as organizing that chaos? and (laughs) Well,
1: I'll I'll tell you how I do it. I mean, you know, I don't really know what other other authors do, although I did get a few lessons from um, Robert Heinlein in our correspondence, and basically he would just keep a bunch of three-by-five cards, and whenever he got an inspiration, he would jot it down on a three-by-five card and stick it in a box, labeled whatever book he thinks it should have gone to.
0: Our next sponsor is Mint Builder. Have you ever heard of the book The Richest Man in Babylon? If not, you can check it out in the bookstore. But it's a classic business book that reveals the key to personal wealth. I'm going to give you that key and it's basically saving 10% every month. So the way I like to save is in gold and silver with Mint Builder. I've been using Mint Builder for years and have attained master status. I have created a system where my savings plan pays for itself by signing up people who want to save and start a silver bank account, which ships physical coin out every month based on their budget. The author of the richest man in Babylon says that magic number is 10% of your income. Now you can build your legacy with the best pricing on metal assets while helping the nonprofit feed my starving children, which uses 90% of donations for food to stop malnutrition, in over a hundred countries around the world. Thank you for considering Mint Builder to build your wealth and feed hungry children. You can go to mintbuilder.com forward slash 102026, or you can go to preciousmetaltrends.com forward slash 102026. Complete the form and claim your free silver bullion bar just for taking our short tour and brief survey. Yeah, so what the last thing I heard was you were telling me about keeping a three-by-five card and putting it in a box, and then it went out
1: Oh, that was quite a ways back then. You really lost a lot of what I had to say.
0: Yeah. Oh,
1: basically, you were just asking um, what the process is that I use for writing a book, and I don't use the three-by-five cards. That's what Robert Highland used, um, but what I do is, uh, is I get ideas for books. I make a folder. For that, with that title, on my on my laptop, and then um, as I get ideas, I write them down in little notes and stick them in, and expand on some of them. And eventually, when I get enough material accumulated, I start organizing it uh, in an outline form, and, and the outline eventually becomes a kind of a chapter outline, and. Um, And then it's a matter of fleshing out the chapters as they develop. But an important part of developing a book concept is a proposal that you have to create to send off to a publisher. And there are some really good online sites on how to write a book proposal. And I found that in doing so, which is which has been invaluable to me, just incredibly so. This is how I really got my first book launched in writing the proposal. You really do lay a foundation for the book itself because you have to write an introduction, explanation, uh, a biography. You have to look up other books in comparable areas, uh, do some research, um, develop a chapter outline and all these things. And in the process of putting together the proposal, um, you really have the foundation for a book. And then it's just a matter of filling in the blanks until you're satisfied. And I spend years on some of my books. The Grimoire, which is my first one, I spent two years on. And um, the Gaia book, uh, which just came out, you know, it's got 50 years of collections of notes and materials that went into it. Um, The Bestiary, which was the most fun book that I ever did, really began with an idea back in the mid-70s that Morning Glory and I were having a conversation following the, uh, the movie, The Last Unicorn. And we thought it would be kind of fun to write a book on the true stories behind mythical beasties. And that research eventually led us to discover The Secret of the Unicorn, which diverted our attentions from the book for a few years while we actually went out and raised unicorns. Eventually, we got back to it and finished the book. And the book came out in 2006. And it's really been the most fun one. And as I said, uh, the first edition is now out of print. And the second edition is um, in, in the final stages of the process. All I have yet to do is the indexing. And that may very well be out within a month or so. So that's that's pretty much all I can tell you about my process. I think other every author has their own process. And it's a good idea to ask them.
0: <laughs> do you... Do you like wake up in the morning and try to write for like an hour or do you do it at night? Like what's your, what's that look like?
1: (laughs) Well, I wish I could be that organized. I wake up in the morning with ideas that I get in my dreams. you know, And I, I usually spend some time in the morning before I actually get out of bed, just lying there in that liminal state. It's my meditation time and kind of organize my thoughts. And then when I get up, I write them down. Uh, ideas, but I generally spend my first uh, time in the morning just dealing with email and messages and Facebook stuff. And there's just huge volume of communications that really don't have anything to do with progressing my writing, but are really important for me, like this um, podcast, for example. So my morning is generally spent with that, you know, communicating with the rest of the world. And then, um, in the early afternoon, after lunch, I hopefully will have some time if I don't have something else scheduled, And that's pretty much when I do most of my actual writing. And then in the evening, I, after dinner, I generally take a break and just watch some um, you know TV or a movie or something, you know. So that's kind of my general schedule, unless I have a date, of course, which changes everything.:
0: <laughs> Yes, a date with two polyamorous witches. Right.
1: Yep. 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 That's the best kind.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, you're over there in the Northwest and I've heard some of uh, your, your beast theories. I'm, I'm wondering about Bigfoot because I'm, I'm, I'm in East Texas and they've had a lot of sightings out here. Um, and I watched a video uh man i can't remember this guy's name i'll come back to it but it basically posited that bigfoot is actually the neanderthal if you just put hair on a neanderthal it's a bigfoot um, that's
1: not true actually and neanderthals were about the same size as we are about six feet average somewhat less five to six feet and bigfoot is generally reported as being over eight feet tall and neanderthals do not fit that description nor does the physiology of the um uh, of the footprints which indicate a much longer talus, the heel, bone, and the balance and everything are quite different. There's a double ball in the big toe. Um, none of this matches Neanderthal anatomy. Neanderthal anatomy physically was pretty much identical to our own. just um, and in fact, the Neanderthal uh, genome survives very strongly in the in Pacifica through the Denisovian uh, branch that that uh, took the Neanderthals to the to the far east uh ahead of the wave of the cro takeover which happened in europe and stuff and it just pushed the neanderthals further and further east and then into what eventually became indonesia when it was all one solid landmass when the sea levels were lower and then the sea levels rose and isolated indonesia and australia from the rest of the world but by that time the denisovan branch of the neanderthals had already reached there And today, you still see a strong uh, Neanderthal traits in the uh, Melanesian peoples of Indonesia and um, Australia, and particularly New Guinea and Australian Aboriginal things carry a very strong component of the Neanderthal gene. And it certainly was reflected in their physiology, their facial features primarily. But they're still modern people. You know, Neanderthals are modern people. And there's no indication so far that the Bigfoot Fits any of that criteria. We have no indication of language or culture, or, or you know, um, artifacts or clothes or, or anything made by them. But I do feel strongly that the evidence supports the existence of the Bigfoot uh, genome. I personally identify strongest with the identity of the of the Bigfoot Sasquatch with the Paranthropus, um, which was a branch of. Of hominids that that evolved along with our side, uh, they were just much bigger and more robust, and they totally fit the description of the Bigfoot. If there's many reconstructions of Paranthropus, that you can look up, and the physiology, the the hip structure, which is massive, much bigger hip bones, um, everything, all the proportions, and all that we have re- been recording. From people who have reported Bigfoot, and especially from the analysis of the footprints, which is what we have the most of, um, really matches the Paranthropus, not the Neanderthals.
0: For, wow! So you you think it's a relic hominid, just a different one?
1: Yes, definitely. Okay.
0: Yeah the uh, the guy came to mind that that did that um, presentation. His name's Lloyd Pie. He just he died, but if you if you YouTube Lloyd Pie Bigfoot, woo, he'll blow your mind. But maybe he was off of uh, a genome. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs>
1: well, you know, the, many people have theories, and the theories are only as good as the evidence that can back them up until we have something more solid. Uh, right now, our solid evidence is 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 almost entirely footprints and a few samples of hair that have been identified as um, hominid um, but not specified as any species because we don't actually have any samples of um, The hair of the paranthropus or earlier hominids because all we have is bones and fossilized at that so there's not much even real dna our dna from the denisovan branch of the neanderthals is only from a couple of teeth that have been found that's pretty much it except for of course the modern people who carry it and we have been able to identify that the work on identifying modern human genomes has actually been able to uh uh, to reveal the existence of the continuing Neanderthal, Denisovan genome, which is really neat.
0: So, so I want to, uh, you, you were just mentioning that you get up um, and do the, this the sleep, you know, work, but I was just going to ask you if you do anything specific um, to, to help your dreaming process or astral efforts. Like, um, do you have any kind of a, a sleep slash dream uh, ritual to help remember uh, what what happens, or to to even get into an astral situation. Like, um, can you talk on that?
1: Well, I I don't think that my practices fits the formal requirements that many people do who are who are really official meditators and all that stuff. Uh, but I do a lot of dream work, and I've developed this over the years and gotten quite good at it. Uh, some of the key elements are that I always take uh, three milligrams of melatonin before I go to sleep, about an hour before I go to sleep, It helps to um, vivify the dreams and make them more memorable. And then I always keep a glass of water beside the bed, and I take a good drink before I go to sleep. And then periodically and during the night, I'll wake up to go pee, maybe once or twice, and uh, take some more water. And the reason for that is that when you awaken in the in the midst of a dream which is what you do when you um have to wake up and pee uh is that you will remember the dream so it's important then to keep some way of, re- of recording it so keeping a notepad beside the bed is very helpful um for people who are really good at it s- keeping your cell phone that you can record something is good so that's that point when you just awaken from the dream that you can most vividly remember it and um and I've developed a lot of skill at being conscious in my dreams, what we call lucid dreaming. And in that, uh, I will pursue a question. I'll go to sleep with a question in my mind. I'll get all obsessed about something and really where it's am totally focused on it, you know, and then I'll sleep on it. and it's a it's a what they say, you know, well, i better go sleep on it, you know And the answer will generally come. You know, and whether it's an image like the uh, Pankadus we mentioned earlier, which again came to me in a dream, or the technique for creating unicorns, which came out of a dream, or many ideas on how to illustrate or make a point, all these things come in dreams. The trick is being able to um, pay attention to them and remember them. And the melatonin and the water are the two little secret ingredients I've found that work for me.
0: Good one. I've I've uh, also heard mug, mugwort. I think like
1: yes, um, mug, mugwort in a dream pillow is used by many people. I haven't really done that, but I hear it's a good thing, and maybe I'll take it up. But I'm I'm doing fine with what I've got. But I but there are many techniques, and you can look them up. You know, I've got there a whole chapter about that in the Grimoire.
0: Nice. So so you're teaching that at the school. I assume. Yeah, you we have-, have
1: classes in dreamwork in the school.
0: Nice, nice. I, I, I remember seeing uh, that you guys built, you know, a, like a Second Life um, virtual campus way before the metaverse was a, was a thing. Are, are you guys planning on um, taking that into the crypto space, or um, is it, how's that going?
1: Well, we did develop a Second Life campus, um, a virtual campus, which is pretty cool, and people really enjoy it. We've had that going on now for, well, quite a few years, about 10 years, I think, and uh, that's been very successful. Really beautiful campus, a lot of possibilities. We are also um, now have a physical campus at our headquarters in uh, upstate New York, which we're expanding and developing. Right now, we're um, we're working on building the uh, new dormitories for the conclave which is coming up in July up there I'll be our second conclave at our at our facility. It's in Whitehall New York, the little town of Whitehall and um, so we're doing that. Um, I don't know anything about the crypto world that's really not my area I'm I write the books I teach stuff but, um, the technical things of making stuff happening in the virtual world is a little bit beyond my pay level.
0: Yeah. I guess, I guess the difference between, you know, and I have to look and see what second life is doing, but yeah, you know how you can play a a game and get coin or points, you know, it just makes, it puts a little more um, reality into the money as far as value, you know? So um, you know, there's, there's the metaverse is, is uh, they're, they're calling it Web three, you know. So the internet's just evolving from what it, you know, the social login to logging in with a wallet, basically a crypto wallet. So the internet, what you're gonna see is websites start making you log in with your, with your crypto, with your Bitcoin address instead of your Facebook address, you know. But, um. I've also seen that they're figuring out ways to to make that simpler for to onboard new people into the the space. But, but uh, yeah, I was just wondering about that too. Well, it's we a-
1: haven't really developed the area of uh, the monetary um, commercialism of all of this. Probably could use it, but we just haven't. Our focus has been on teaching, and um, you know, not, not on making money. We have really. We never really set out to make money we set out to make a difference but i'm I'm not averse to having more money to support it that's always a good idea it's always been you know we've we've not been really funded by yeah. anything other than um tuitions and in occasional donations so it keeps it at a kind of low level and that's probably a good idea I, the evolution of the whole metaverse and the virtual world is is fascinating to me because you know, if you look at what we've got right now, what's available in the most sophisticated virtual world stuff, I mean, mm-hmm. complete with the VR goggles and the gloves and, the you know, all the rest of it, um, the, you know, some of which I experienced down there in Guatemala. I believe you introduced me to to some of that. And um, I can imagine if this is where we are right now, what's it going to be like in another 10 years or yeah. 100 years or 1,000 years? I yeah. mean, you know wow the possibilities are are really cre- uh, into creating the uh, another another level of reality uh, another matrix and you know many people identify with the theory of um that we are ourselves living in a virtual world that we have that is created somehow by collective consciousness or whatever mm-hmm. but that this world is also a simulation and we're getting to where we can create our own simulations at another level, and those will become more and more prominent. And when we look at the possibility of other civilizations in the galaxy, uh, you know, that may be th- thousands or millions of years ahead of us, um, the possibilities for reality shifting and reality creation are are profound and staggering. The, the implications are, are are really astonishing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, have you... Um have you heard of the Gnostic uh theory of the archons?
1: Well, yes uh but not enough that I can expound on it.
0: Yeah, well, um they they basically found these, these these scrolls, the scroll catches in the in the uh Israel one was called the Nag Hammadi, um catch. And the other one, the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're probably about fifty miles apart. The the, the catches and th- these were basically, I think you would call them Essenes, um, uh that stashed the scrolls to, you know, when the Romans were w- w- wiping out um, people. Right. And uh, you know, if you read those those scrolls, they're they're like unedited bible basically and apocrypha and they, they 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 basically say that we're in you know they say we're in a, a simulation and they call the uh the beans behind it uh archons which means old ruler old rulers and um they said the head archon is named uh pretty much yahweh and um you know the Abrahamic religions are are praying to Yahweh, which is that Old Testament, you know, jealous, angry God. Um, so the Gnostics, you know, called called out um, called that out and said, "Hey, you're you're praying to this automata. That's not God." And and you know, then you have the the Inquisition started to wipe out the Cathars in France that believed this stuff. So, you know, they they basically persecuted um, everyone that that believed these things, down to like one last copy of their book in <laughs> this catch in the Dead Sea. You know, like and it, like it, it now it's online. Like it's like literally like one copy left, and you know now it's on the internet. So people were kind of getting the memo that was right. uh, burned.
1: Well, I am familiar with the history, not not quite as much with the teachings and stuff, which um, have an interest in me as much as other mythologies of, of the world. But I am familiar enough with that um, to know that stuff. The thing that's really interesting is how many times um, vast amounts of knowledge have been lost by this way and come down to a single manuscript somehow that's been preserved. And what about the ones we didn't get even that, you know, the destruction of the library of Alexandria is devastating. The destruction of the libraries of Tibet, of the monasteries that have kept stuff alive, the destruction of, um, well, many, the, 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 libraries of the, um, uh, the Aztecs, the Mayans in particular, yeah. you know, to, lock, to lose all in some cases, we only have a tiny little bit of, uh, of a single manuscript, like the Popol Vuh is the only manuscript we have of the Mayans. The epic of, um, uh, of Gilgamesh, you know, comes down to us in just a few little fragments, and it, it's, it represents a vast amount of information is embedded in that. Um, Beowulf, the whole saga of Beowulf, which is, you know, fabulous saga story, came down in a single manuscript that was almost lost it was just kind of passed around in a few monasteries and nearly destroyed and only recovered by a fluke how many others things like this um Mm -hmm. we didn't even get that we don't even get a single copy because it's very precarious i I think this is such an important part of of human culture is our ability to pass down to succeeding generations our knowledge you know I, i read an interesting article recently on octopi octopuses not octopi octopuses and the question was well if if they're so intelligent which they are highly intelligent uh is there any chance that they may develop a culture and a civilization eventually and the and the problem is no because Mm. the process of giving birth to the next generation kills off the previous generation the mother octopus dies before her eggs hatch you know, she has to take care of them, and then she eats wow. her own tentacles, and she destroys her body in the process of of, uh, of keeping the eggs going until they're ready to hatch, which is quite intense, and, and then she dies. So she never passes on any knowledge that she may have acquired to the next generation, and this is simply built into the, into the concept. What we have going for us, it started with developing language and speech and oral traditions but when we figured out how to write things down and record them and to be able to pass them down to future generations over millennia as we've been able to do this is a, a profound leap forward that has given us an advantage over every other creature on the planet you know not that we're necessarily smarter than whales or dolphins or you know other creatures that may be up there um you know even you know, even chimps and gorillas and dogs and octopuses and African gray parrots are really in the intelligence level of, of human children. But um, they don't have a language in a way of passing down things to the next generation. There's no transmission.
0: Yeah, the uh, I, I just saw an article myself on uh, Minecraft, which is a pretty popular game. I don't play it. But um, my kids do. And uh, there's a library. Somebody built, like, a library. And, like, every um, repressed, you know, piece of literature that people need to be reading that, that they don't have access to, they put in that library. So they made, like, a digital Alexandria, you know, like in Minecraft. So that's, that's kind of why I like the uh, crypto stuff, because it, it, it promises, like, a more immutable um more uh, uh it, it allows for storage of information in a way that people can't really mess with it you know so well, that's
1: great until of course we get an emp the thing is that that <laughs> yeah. we can still read egyptian stuff that was written on papyri you know 3 4000 years ago we can read ancient sumerian stuff that was um, engraved in clay tablets 5000 years ago and we can still read that stuff it's still around but we cannot read things that were written on paper um a hundred years ago because the paper deteriorates and falls apart and it's made with acid stuff and we're losing our contemporary libraries or just i, I i'm i always think of that scene in the movie the time machine where the time traveler goes to a library that's eight thousand years in the future and he wants to know what happened and he and there's still books on the shelf and he He reaches for a book and picks it up and it just crumbles to dust in his hands. And and that image has always stuck with me because that's really what we're doing. And if right next to it, there were cuneiform clay tablets, they'd still be there and still readable, but not our, not our current literature, not our writing. And the electronic stuff is even worse. One EMP and it's all gone.
0: Yeah. uh, I, I really like my, uh, yoruba lineage because the tradition there was to pass the information orally so the whole system is intact and
1: unless uh, in, in the last person who knows the stuff dies which has happened to many cultures and and their oral traditions have simply been lost entirely of uh, of the druids and, and 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 many native american peoples that um you know their their tribes were wiped out by you know, uh, conquest or disease or whatever, and the last storyteller who is the preserver of that knowledge dies without passing it on. That's it. And it's gone.
0: Yep, yeah, true sure to that. Woo. So so do you have a library in uh the second life where you guys are storing the the knowledge?
1: and i I don't believe that we do. I'm not quite sure how one would do that, but it's an interesting concept. i'm I'm not sure we don't, but i I'm not aware that we do. Uh, I think that we reference um, all of our books and in, in textbooks and stuff like that, or either electronic or hard copy mm. uh, copies for it. But I don't believe that we have anything in a uh, a library in Second Life that you could go to, but it's it's probably a good idea to start doing that, you
0: know, yeah. So so you mentioned a, a conclave in, in New York. What is a conclave?
1: A conclave is what we call a gathering, um, a great school gathering. It's, uh, you know, folks come together. We have, um, uh, we've had different kinds. We've had campouts, which are, take place somewhere. There's a campground. And then it involves teachings and classes and campfire in the evenings and stargazing and storytelling and lessons and nature walks. and you know, making things, um, usually things like wands and staffs that are really good to make mm-hmm. out of natural materials. And it's just a, a get-together for the school. Um, and and our, we have to, in order to have a conclave, we have to have a couple of actual teachers available. So I'm one of them, and I get taken around the country to attend these, but other local teachers are also. And um, they're really quite neat. I, I think that they're a lot of a lot of fun and very instructive, and everybody loves them.
0: Awesome. Well, if you, if you have any uh, links for me to share with the with the audience, um, please send those to me, and I'll include them in the show notes um, so that everybody can get get your 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 info and. Interface as needed.
1: All right, I'll send you a batch of uh, of links for some of the stuff that would be uh, hopefully useful. That would be great. Like I said, um, the uh, you can just Google me. You know, I've got a Wikipedia page, and if you just put Oberon Zell and you'll come up with probably thousands of references. But but I do have a Wikipedia page, and it lists my things. I have a personal website, Oberon Zell dot com um and there's the gray school grayschool.com and all of my books are available on amazon uh so you just you know type my name into amazon books and you'll get it so it's really not that hard to find me in my work it's all over the place but i will send you specific links sweet
0: uh, one, one one last question we're, we're hitting about an hour now so i won't keep you any long i just I remember you telling me about uh, your name Oberon, but uh, if you could remind me how that name came to be, um, I looked it up. It means bear, it, it would seem. But how how did you um, fall into that name? Or well, the ra- reference
1: ra- in the reference in my case comes from Shakespeare's uh, uh, delightful comedy play *Midsummer Night's Dream*, mm. where Oberon is the king of the fairies. You know, in his his wife is Titania, the the queen. And um, that and it's you know it's it's a neat name that I have always enjoyed, but I've never actually applied it to myself. I had a cat named Oberon, and we named one of our unicorns, a, a miniature unicorn. We called him Oberon because he was our fairy unicorn. but I never thought about taking the name, and that was actually just given to me by somebody who was visiting us. At that time, um, I had been going by the name Otter which I had been given by a, uh, uh, a, a an encounter with a wild otter in the wild, which is very profound. And so I bore that name for a number of years from 1979 till 95, really. And then I had this, um, uh, this meeting with a woman who was a namer for the Rajneesh community. That was what she did. People would come into the community and they would always have to take a new name and and she was one of the people who would give them their new name. And that's what she did. And when she met me, she said, oh, when I see you, I don't see an otter. I see Oberon. And that, and the way that that came down just struck. I it, it, it felt like a mantle descended from the clouds and wrapped itself around my shoulders. And, and from that point on, um, that was my name. It's not one that I chose or selected. And... Um, There was a bit of controversy about it in the first place because Morning Glory did not want to be identified as Titania. And she being my wife, that would have been the logical thing. But as she said, a woman with a 42-inch bust, you know, is no business calling herself Titania. Uh, (laughs) And so she continued to be Morning Glory. And so we we eventually reached an acceptable place with that. But it was not an easy transition, especially for her.
0: Well, it's been awesome reconnecting with you. I just, I just got um, a property in East Texas, out in the uh, pine forest, and we're making shrines and temple space and all that stuff. So, if you ever, uh, ever in Texas or want to do something in Texas or come back to Guat, let me know. Mikasa Sukasa. Well, that's wonderful. I
1: I appreciate that. I, I love it. I certainly really enjoyed our hospitality when we were down in guatemala and i do have people in texas obviously donna is still there she's been doing the texas renaissance fairs for over 40 years now that's where we first met um 40 years ago it was at the texas renaissance festival when i was there with a unicorn and and i met her so um i have roots there in texas and and one of our family members of our expanded family um lives in austin and is worth visiting periodically. So I may be there. And if it's so, I'll look you up.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, you enjoyed the rest of your weekend. Thanks for joining me on this. I will uh, edit it, send you a copy. And um, if, if anything, uh, if you have any commentary, like be sure and uh, share it to your network if you feel called. Uh, and um, yeah, thanks. Just Thanks for coming on. I, I love your work. I'm a big fan. And I will make sure and propagate uh, these books and everything else that you've done. So
1: Well, thank you, Baba John. In, in fact, I might mention briefly in passing that I'm doing a monthly uh, podcast of my own uh, called The Ides of Oberon. And it's, as the title suggests, on the 15th of every month. And um, I'm doing that in conjunction now with The Gray School. So that's something else that we're, that's going on there. So folks might want to tune into that. Anyway, thank you. It's been a delight uh, visiting with you again after all this time. And uh, good on you for this.
0: Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Check out his links in the show notes. I'm going to put a link to the Apprentice Grimoire from my bookshop. If you would like to support the show, uh, you can buy that one at uh, the show's bookshop. And make sure and like, follow, and share if you feel so compelled. Enjoy the rest of your week. And I'm going to be traveling this month, I've got a conference in Austin probably have some good interviews later on in the month, but um, that's it for now. Many blessings and um, love you.